Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio, Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. You can download the app in the App Store or on Google Play, and you get over 200 meditations from 30 expert teachers. Such a small investment to sleep better, feel less anxious, and to be more focused and productive. And your one-time purchase of the app helps to keep our podcast going. Give it a try. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. We love having you with us. Today, I interviewed the lovely Amy Gross, former editor-in-chief of O, the Oprah magazine, now fully devoted to practicing and teaching mindfulness. She shares the path that led her to making the choice to teach mindfulness and why she believes it has the power to help retrain our minds, to free us from the kind of reactions that cause stress and suffering, and to help us find a truer kind of happiness. I was especially curious about how we sit with sadness or negative thoughts while we're meditating. She describes one of the most effective tools that mindfulness teaches, the RAIN method. It's a pretty powerful acronym for our practice on and off the cushion. Now, here's Amy. Amy, it's so great to have you on Untangle today. I'm so glad to be talking to you. Such a pleasure to be here. I wanted to start by letting our listeners know a little bit about your background and maybe start with your, your working life as a media person and as an editor. Okay, well, that started uh, seven days after I graduated from college. Okay. And I had entered college pre-med and halfway through got completely derailed and ended up on the newspaper at school. And by the time I graduated, um, medical school was a thing of the past. And I started, I showed up at Glamour magazine seven days after graduation. And I was there, and I stayed at Condé Nast, and I was at um, Glamour, I was at Mademoiselle, I ended up at Vogue. Just really not sure why I was there, what I was doing, because I had grown up in a family where the thing was to be a doctor. Right, so what changed? You know, I think it was physics. Uh (laughs) Taking that one physics class? And uh, yes, taking physics and dropping out of physics. What made you want to be a doctor? Was it because your family? My father. Your father. My father. He was a doctor and you wanted to be Everybody around us, everybody in the neighborhood, all my relatives. Oh, wow. And was it your calling? Was that the question for you? So, you know, my calling, and it's weird because in a way I feel like I've circled back to that, Mm -hmm. which is I am serving people and I am working to make them feel better. I'm working on helping them heal. Right. Right. So maybe you were always in the direction of being a healer. Do you think this calling that you're saying is was to serve? You really had this deep curiosity about people. Were you always someone that questioned things? You know, what I questioned was how to be happy. From the beginning. From the beginning. I was a little girl. Okay. And it seemed to me that my mother and my sister knew how to be happy. 
And I kept thinking, what do they know that I don't know? Were you anxious? Were you I was anxious. I felt, you know, I felt, I felt like an outsider in my own family. I mean, my family would be horrified to hear me say this, right. so I will not tell them. Okay, about we won't this tell them. Recording. <laughs> but, you know, I just felt not um, seen in mm -hmm. some way. And so I, I think I've been trying to figure out what makes for happiness mm. for a very long time. How did you process that as a child, if you can remember? Well, I think I kind of tried everything to be like to find my way. Yeah. So I think I was pretty much of an introvert. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. it sounds like you were an introvert living in a family of extroverts, and that maybe was confusing. Yeah. So then, so you reflected on that growing what up. What makes for happiness? What that was my question. You know, so um, when I went to college, it was just about the time Zen books were coming in from Japan. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I started reading them. I don't even know how I found them. I have no memory of stumbling on them in the bookstore. You know, I remember when you sit, just sit. When you walk, just walk. Above all, don't wobble. Um, I was reading Watts Zen, Alan Watts. I was reading Zen, later Zen and the Art of Archery, these mm -hmm. wonderful books that came over that were enigmatic and very simple. And reading them, it was as though sky was clearing. You know, mm -hmm. like you take that, you know, muddy water and you yeah. just let it sit and the, and the water clears. And that's what I felt like reading these books. Wow. So was that your first introduction to Buddhism? Yes. And yes. did you start meditating in college? Cause I, I, I did. You know, I read, I figured out, I read, you know, you count your breath. So I would count my breath, not even knowing what I was going for. I just knew there was a simplicity. There was a quieting. Mm -hmm. And my mind was so noisy. Your mind was noisy. Oh, chatter chatter, abusive chatter, self, you know. Abusive to yourself, yes. you're a critic, 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 critic. And critical, critical of other people. You know, if you see someone being rude and abusive to other people, you know that's what's going on inside. Mm -hmm. It's very sad, yeah. you know. People like that must be seen with compassion, really. Right, right. And so I just kept going in that. And when I got out of school, I... I came to New York and got a first job, you know, as I said at Glamour. And, you know, somebody would say, there's a meditation teacher in from Japan. He doesn't speak any English, but, you know, and but there's a translator or something. And I would, like, go up to somebody's aunt's apartment on Beekman Place and be sitting there. I didn't know what I was doing. It's so interesting that as you've always questioned what makes you happy and then you explored Zen and then even though professionally you went down this path it seems like there are a lot of intersections again with this calling for yes. Zen and meditation and that was before it was mainstream at all. Not mainstream. Yeah. So then what happens as you start so, like so your career you're, is exploding you're doing really well in this career that you Sort of accidentally, accidentally upon. not sure why I'm there. And you're a writer, a I'm good writer, writing, but you're a curiosity and seeker. And I'm getting jobs, and every time I think, I think I'll go home and write, just because I did not see myself in a corporate world. I'd get some a, a job offer that seemed so interesting. I just had to mm -hmm. take it. And at a certain point, 
um, I had a friend who is an art critic named Kay Larson, and we would meet every now and then for lunch and talk about our interest in Buddhism. And at one, one lunch, I think it was 1994, and I said, Kay, enough with the reading. I have to start doing it consistently. And she said, me too. And she was going to go off to Mount Tremper Monastery mm -hmm. in Woodstock and study with John Dido Loring, mm -hmm. late, great yes. John Dido yes. Loring. And a couple of weeks later, I came back from lunch and there was a message from Kay Larson saying, Amy, I think I found a teacher for you. His name is Joseph Goldstein and he's going to be teaching up at Omega. I signed up for the retreat. I go there. There's Joseph and Sharon leading this retreat. So that was the beginning of Vipassana. Now in 1974, a friend of mine said she was going to take transcendental meditation. Right. Yeah. And I said, why? And she said, well, it lowers blood pressure. She'd been very depressed. A boyfriend dumped her. And I said, I'm going to go and support you. I'm going to go with you. And I started doing it in 1974. And it's, it's a wonderful practice. Mm -hmm. The thing is, and it's, it's a, I felt like it scoured my brain. It, like I would wake up in the morning and it was such a slow awaker. I would sit and do TM. I'd be wide awake. It's more of a, like a multiplier for sleep, like you're getting a really so. deep rest, which I is, so. I think, different from some of these other meditations, it's which I want to talk to you about. It's very yeah. different. So, so you did do that for a while. Yes, really for decades. For, oh, decades. okay, okay. So, and then came the insight meditation. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is also called insight meditation. Yes. And I think that's a good name for it because you get insights, you get wisdom. Yes clear seeing. Mm -hmm. There's this clear seeing. There's seeing how things really are. And what you see, the Buddha said, he, his interest was in one thing, suffering. What is suffering in the end of suffering? It was the same question I'd had. So you sit there with your mind and you see the thoughts and emotional patterns your reactivity that cause you suffering and you see how they are not you. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you see that? Because so they pass. So when I was meditating in the um, beginning, in the or, beginning, yeah. so I had a therapist named Mark, Mark Epstein. Oh, you've been with all the masters. I, yes, <laughs> yes. And that's how I yeah. met him because I said, can I come interview you? Mm. So I was, one time I said to him, I said, where do thoughts come from? He said, that's a good question. Why don't you, you know, think kind about of work that. on that? Oh. So it's a question of, it's not thinking. This is a process. One of your interviews, I think it was Mark Coleman who said, we don't, it's not about thinking because the, the thinking mind can get, easily get derailed. Mm -hmm. You know, the thinking mind falls for stories, delusions, hallucinations, paranoia, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. So this is asking a different way. So where do thoughts come from? So where, if you're looking for where, you look for where. So you'd be sitting there and watching your thoughts and you become aware that the thoughts are coming by themselves. Don't you notice that? Yeah, the thoughts come, I mean, that is the instruction, right? The thoughts. Some of them 
linger and then they pass. You go back to your breath or your anchor, but then they maybe come back again and then the instruction is to maybe investigate or get curious about those thoughts. That's right. That's so right. does that, is that consistent with you are not your thoughts or it just means that your thoughts will change? How do you think about that? So I think of it as the thoughts come on their own. Mm -hmm. um, I do not design them in the basement, right. you know, and yeah. send them up. They come and as habits, they're habits. Or memories. Would memories, well, patterns. the memories yeah. condition what thoughts mm -hmm. come, yeah. your patterns. So you don't design your thoughts. They come on their own. They are triggered by things in the world. Mm -hmm. They're triggered by a sight. A tone of voice can trigger a mood. Have you ever had that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Can trigger a sadness. So yeah. These, these are patterns of reactivity. So animals are patterns of reactivity. We're patterns of reactivity, as flowers are. The sun comes up, the flowers turn toward the sun. Phototropism, mm, right? Right. So we depend- We're trained, we're all like trained based on our conditioning. Right. Which isn't the true self. Right. It's the herd, the herd instinct in mm -hmm. us. We want approval. And sh I always think of shame and guilt and our hunger for uh, approval. These are these are how we become. We became a herd, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's our socialization, right? And it's good for you know civilization in a certain right. way. Yes. So these these patterns of reactivity. I heard you say we talk a lot about autopilot mm -hmm. on this. Yeah, yeah. So we live a lot on autopilot. We say things, um, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of you say, hi, how are you? The person says, fine, how are you? And you say, how are you? And they, you, you know, <laughs> you just, I, I mean, you know, we're so um, we're overwhelmed so, by stimuli, yeah. you know, that just to react, it, just to respond in this moment, mm -hmm. just to, to what is arising in this moment. And I use the word arising because we are not our thoughts. We're not our emotions. You know, any more than the clouds that pass in the sky are under our control or the waves that roll on the beach. Mm -hmm. So we say in mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is an outgrowth in a way of mindfulness of the Buddha's Vipassana practice. Mm -hmm. So molecular biologist John Kabat-Zinn is on retreat and he has this epiphany of how this practice which meant so much to him could be unfolded in eight weeks and delivered to people who had no interest in buddhism and he was doing that for pain to try and help people with pain so this is what he thought doctor. yes he so thought so initially. again it's suffering so he goes back to umass to the doctors um, who he says do you have patients who have chronic pain that you you have nothing to offer them. He, he said, send them to me. So down in the basement of UMass, he unfolds this eight-week program. And the results were really promising. They These people could reduce their pain medication. They upped their activity levels. Their sense of self-efficacy, which is, I can handle this. Mm -hmm. 
I can handle this, which is the greatest marker for health. Resilience is developed. Mm. The ability to respond faster, the ability to recover from stress faster. So stress is resistance. To what is. Yeah. yeah. To, is resistance to what is. And it's, um, it come, the term comes from actual, like, like the stress on a, on a steel beam, mm -hmm. you know, so it's what pressures impinge upon us, right? Right, right. Mindfulness is the antidote to that. Mm -hmm. So immune, immune boost in every way. And, you know, a marker for um, meditators is they recover from stress very fast. Well, so what you're really saying is it's not the amount of stress that we have in our lives. It's the tools that we have to cope with the stress. There are some people that learn these tools very young, and sometimes it's mindfulness, sometimes it's some other form of meditation. Um, and there are people who never learn it because they're either resistance or they don't have access well, to it. Or they don't know about it. They don't know about it. And or it's, it's very uncomfortable. It's, well... Sometimes, you know. Well, so let's talk about that for a second. Do you think that meditating is uncomfortable or do you think that facing your stress is uncomfortable? What's uncomfortable? Well, meditating is facing your stress. The stress is not in the event. Necessarily. It's in the reaction to but it. But it's in how we relate to it. It's right. our reaction to it. Right. So we think of mindfulness as an intervention. Mm -hmm. So here's a stimuli, the stimulus. Yes. Reaction. It, can't it seems like you can't separate it, right? But when you're paying attention, which is what mindfulness is, it's paying, paying attention. attention. In this, judgment. In this, yes, in yeah. this, in this very careful, attentive, gentle, compassionate way. You see a stimulus, you recognize the stimulus, and in that recognition, there is this space. Mm -hmm. And in that space, here's mindfulness, we, we have a choice of responses. Mm -hmm. So instead of no freedom, automatic pilot, we have the possibility of choice. And that's liberation. Mm -hmm. We have a choice of how to respond. So we convert our reactivity, which I don't know about you, but when you when I think about it, it makes everything worse. Yes, it totally you know, works. Except, and then you regret how oh, you've behaved. Let's just say one yeah. thing about reactivity. You know those famous stories of the mothers who are lift trucks off right. their babies. So it's not you know, the stress reaction has has its upside. Right. It's just that we live in chronic stress, which is implicated as either the cause or exacerbating almost every disease condition. I'm always so curious, like in a meditation practice, when you get stuck on something or some experience or thought or emotion just keeps hanging on and hooking you, what, what do you suggest or what are some of the tools that you might recommend for someone to be able to deal with that. Yeah, that's, it's, it's even beyond such a common experience. It is the experience, mm -hmm. you know, and through practice, those moments of getting stuck begin to break and there'll be moments of peace, a little moment of peace, then you get stuck again. 
And that's what practice is. And the coming back is half the game. Can you come back? Can you realize the mind has wandered and come back? But how do you do that? How do you remember? So first of all, simply practicing regularly builds up the habit of mindfulness, which is beginning to oppose the habit of drifting, getting triggered by emo you know, emotionally, getting lost in thought. Those are the habits we've been, in a sense, cultivating. Now, with practice, we're beginning to cultivate mindfulness, which is remembering. The hard thing is remembering to remember. So, so we can't always rem remind ourselves because we're stuck, we're lost. So we build up mindfulness, which is, I think of it like tapping on the mind. The more you do it, it says, hello, hello in there, remember here, remember here. So you come back. Now, what can you do in addition to practice? What is it that we do that helps us remember? So there is a moment that comes more and more easily when we recognize that we've been lost in thought. And that recognize is the first step in a process of disengagement that, we, that begins an acronym. We have an acronym called RAIN, which is a very skillful four-step process that helps you disengage from the churning, that helps you release from the stickiness of whatever your mind is being gripped by. So the, the beginning of RAIN is R, and that is to recognize dread is here. Mm. Or that dreaded thought, or that dreaded emotion, dread. yes, whatever, whatever. it is. Dread. Okay. It could even begin not so articulately. It could just begin with, hmm, something's wrong. So the, there's a recognition, something's wrong. And then we go to the A of rain. And in that wrong, that sense of wrongness, there's an accepting. There, this is wrong. There's something, the, the recognition has, let's say we've discovered, it feels like dread. It feels like anger. It feels like fear. Let's take fear. Fear's a good one. So then there's that A, which is fear is here. Which doesn't sound like such a big statement, but most of the time, if you pay attention, you'll see when you're afraid, you just act out irritable, anxious. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you're not thinking, poor body is afraid. Mm -hmm. You know, you're... So the invitation is to allow it or accept it. And then there's the I, which is investigate. And it doesn't mean like you put on a Sherlock Holmes hat and you're right, right. fiercely invest, you know, fiercely scrutinizing. You're opening to the sensation. Oh, so first of all, you might ask, so how does fear feel? Where is it in the body? Mm -hmm. You're probably going to find it in your belly, in your chest. The breath is being held. You know, the freeze of the stress reaction, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're held. The body is held. So there's this investigation. And as we feel into this body freezing, there's often a release just in the becoming aware of what is involved in fear. What are the components of fear? 
Are you still letting your thoughts, like thoughts and emotions, just sort of move through you, or are you actually really, doing a different really, kind of a process? Really, it's it's really dropping in to to it's how do you really, yes. think or feel about how, yes, this particular yes. What situation. is associated with this? Mm -hmm. Here's what you're not doing. You're not trying to figure it out. Now, let me ask you a question about that before we get to the end. What does that mean in terms of what if the fear that you're having is some sort of existential fear about? what you're going to be like when you're 80 years old or what kind of a job you know some big question about what you should be doing with your life and you you kind of get stuck in all of your meditations that you do you just keep coming back to that do you just keep doing this process over and over until it starts weighing less on you or what if something's really weighing on someone in a big way i would say that if you're doing this RAIN process more and more deeply, mm -hmm. the trigger is going to lose its power. So you're going to begin to recognize this existential question. What, what am I going to be when I grow get up? up? <laughs> when I grow up, yes. right? Yeah. Your body reaction, you begin to realize, is actually not furthering your getting an answer. So you're saying the angst you feel isn't doing you any good. That's right. So what you want to do is sort of separate so, from the angst right. and have that question just loom, yes. loom gently. And then when your mind is cool, yeah. you can bring some thought to it. Someone calls and someone you love has been is suddenly in the hospital and your mind spins off into the story, which we've talked about. And your mind so wants certainty that it will tell you the most horrible story. The mind seems to prefer the horrible story to the simple fact that you don't know. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, your poor body doesn't know it's just a movie. The, right. the, the story, body takes on that stress. This is what's happening. Right. The person's going to die and things will be terrible. So then this I, this investigation, can spot the story and notice that story. That's not true. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Taking refuge, sitting back and admitting, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Now the N is a little tricky. So there are teachers who say it's nurturing, nurturing yourself. But the way I was taught it is it's non-identifying. So this anger, this fear, whatever it is, is not you. It is something that's arisen, something that will pass. It's not you. Mm -hmm. Any more than a dark cloud in the sky is the sky. So it's not like you're, you're indifferent or that you don't care about this. It's that you are approaching it in a completely new way with a new lens. Absolutely, exactly. Totally counterintuitive. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me that often people try to distract themselves when they have, when they get hooked with these types of emotions, whether it's fear or anxiety or anger, you, know, you try to sort of run away and resist that. And this notion of sitting with your thoughts and feelings might feel and seem counterintuitive. What is your thought on that? 
It's the process. It's the process. It's right? the process. Yeah. It's the exact opposite yeah, of what you think it of is. The way we're trained right. to deny it. I'm not angry. Mm-hmm. John Kabat Zinn defines mindfulness as paying attention moment by moment without judgment. Another way of saying that is without resistance. Mm. Now, immediately someone will say, well, does that mean you just get passive and let right. life... Right, and lazy and... Yeah. Yeah, so it's totally different. So it comes down to, can you recognize, can you discern the difference between things that you can change and things that you can't? Mm-hmm. There are a couple of other things, though. I just want to go back to the N and the not identifying. Mm-hmm. So... With not identifying, what you're avoiding is the whole voice in your head that says, I am an angry person, I'm a fearful person, I'm, I'm lazy, whatever it is, all those identifiers as are not fed, not fed by this process, not reinforced. So it's not that you're an angry person. Anger has arisen. It's not your doing, it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. So right away, your ideas about yourself are changing. So imagine, you know, a, when people start meditating and they're left alone with their minds, they're not comfortable, right? Because who knows what horrible things are going to come up, you know, on the screen of your mind. Yeah. But if that's not you, if it's that's a totally not, different. Thing. Yeah, it's just ancient patterns. You know, so you habitual thinking. Yes, yes, and you you develop compassion for this being. You know, this this suffering that comes up for some because of something that happened when you were three or twenty. You know, whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So compassion grows, and compassion is a one of the sweetest. Yeah. Maybe maybe. the sweetest, sweetest thing ever. feeling in the world. And once you have compassion for yourself, it's much easier to have compassion. It, there's for no others. difference. Yeah. There's another way of dealing with this, which is, you know, try it, which is you recognize the feeling. Here is here is sadness and you you know where it's coming from because it's you you know it. And whatever it is, you then you're always trying to open to whatever you're feeling. The body's reactivity, the, the primitive animal lizard brain is contracting. We're practicing staying open and breathing, mm-hmm. staying open and feeling it and knowing it. And then in that state of openness, you ask, you drop in the question, what does this feeling need? Oh, that's interesting. It is so interesting. So, can you give me an example? So, okay, so you say to yourself in your meditation, what does this feeling need? Like, you might be feeling overwhelmed, fear, anger, sadness, grief. You're like, what does this feeling need? It's like dropping in the question. It's Mm -hmm. not uh, going up to the office. Oh, it's not like in your executive functioning. You know, you're not not Googling (laughs) it. But you're kind of feeling that sense. You're a well. Okay. Feeling, uh, imagining yourself a well. Okay. And it's like dropping a pebble into the well. What does this feeling need? So the first time I did that, I thought, 
wow, that's being kind to a feeling rather than embarrassed by it. So, you know, we started out this conversation with your search for happiness and super curious. Have you found real happiness? I have certainly found moments of happiness. I've certainly been awed by the way practice shows you where happiness is to be found. I was thinking I've been looking for happiness in all the wrong places mm -hmm. and now I think I'm looking for it in the right places. Mm -hmm. And I've learned a lot about what it isn't, which is it isn't excitement, it's peace. Mm -hmm. It isn't having something fabulous to look forward to. It's about really being able to be in this moment, this very moment. Well, thank you so much. These are such great insights and I'm so glad I got you fresh off of a retreat. Yes. I could keep talking about this for hours, so I'm so grateful. Thank you, I thank love it you. too. I yeah. love talking to you about it. Thanks so much to Amy for joining us on Untangle. You can find out more about her at mindfulnessmeditationnyc.com. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio in the App Store or on Google Play. We'll see you next week.